Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us over EWTN Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest for today's program is Dr. George Harn. He's a former Anglican, president of the College of St. Mary Magdalene in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, uh, George was named the fourth president of the College of St. Mary Magdalene in Warner, New Hampshire in February. So he's a recent president. Uh, st- is it still a honeymoon period? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, but it's great to have him here. He succeeds Jeffrey Carls, who served, and uh, uh, Dr. Harn served as the academic college academic dean since 2009. He has also taught courses in philosophy, Latin, and mathematics. He holds advanced degrees in music history, musicology, and liberal studies with a Ph.D. in musicology from Princeton. Uh, Dr. George Harn was brought up in the Pen- Pentecostal Church, but later via Presbyterianism and Anglicanism was drawn home to the Catholic Church. And just as an update, Harn and his wife have four children ranging in age, ages from two years to 11 years with a fifth on the way. So congratulations. Thank That's you. exciting. It's exciting. And uh, I will say you have a, a Ph.D. in musicology, but they've got you teaching philosophy, Latin, and mathematics. That's right. That's right. Well, part of that is um, because I went to St. John's College for uh, two years, so I, I studied the great books there, and we are a great books college, so it made sense for me to, to jump in there. And My PhD in music is, is in medieval music, so Latin is the language of the Middle Ages. There you go. So that's how that came about. I've noticed that, at, for example, over at Franciscan University, in their what they call their honors program, which my middle son is taking, that it's really a great books program, but the professors are not necessarily always an English professor or a right. philosophy professor. Uh, in fact, the professor that my son Peter is, is studying from this semester is an economics professor who's teaching this semester That's in right. the, the great book. So. That's right. Yeah, I think this, the uh, the presumption is that the, um, the, the person teaching a great books class is uh, sort of a senior learner. That, that they're they're there together around the table working through the text, uh, and um, it's it's a team effort. I'm assuming for a second we might have some non-Catholics listening. My background was Lutheran and then later Congregationalist and Presbyterian before I became Catholic, and I don't know that I ever appreciated during those periods the the difference that the great books, the history of literature played in our faith, our understanding of our faith here in the 21st century. Because it seems to me, as I look back, the danger was, I've got the Bible. That's all that I need. And other literature comes and goes, but the the Bible is the foundation for my faith. It's what connects me to Jesus. And so the, the need to study in this literature was never part of my upbringing at all. And, and to a certain extent, I didn't start appreciating any of that literature until after I became Catholic. I read Dante, the, the three books of Dante, when I was 45. I wish I could have done it with a community, like a, a class, but I had to do it by myself. And so in, in some sense, I miss that. But I wonder from your standpoint, is there extent, a sense in which the study of those was a key part of your journey to really coming to grips with the, the significance of the Catholic faith as a result of that 
that whole history of literature? I I would say it definitely was. Um, As a Catholic, I understand that truth is a unity. There's a, a, um, across literature, across philosophy, history, um, there are certain truths that are united, truths about uh, what it means to be a human being, um, that, uh, what it means to, to live in a community. Uh, and that many of these truths are in, often presupposed by the things we find in scripture and, um, and affirmed there and articulated there. So, uh, I think whether you're reading, um, there are certain things you find in Homer, um, that you find in Shakespeare, uh, that you find in T.S. Eliot. Um, there's a, there's a long line of continuity, uh, about the human experience and the, the fundamental needs that we have as human beings, the fact that we were created for communion with God and with others. Um, and so, uh, in many ways, these, these texts can serve as a, as a preparation for, um, an encounter with revelation and, uh, make us more open to it. It's almost a sense in which a view that is only scripture as the only trustworthy expression of, of God's will and plan in our entire history of humanity. It's the only one that's trustworthy, inspired versus everything else is a very truncated view of God's influence in culture, as opposed to, no, God is using Homer, God is speaking through Aristotle, God is speaking through, even in certain ways, all these other authors, they're not necessarily inspired. We we don't take them as definitive, but yet they are, in a certain sense, a witness. Right, and we see St. Paul doing that in the book of Acts, using uh, poets that were contemporary, uh, to to draw in his listeners, and um, I think we find that in among very um, effective preachers even today, using the truths they find in culture to build a bridge um, between the culture of the time and, and and revelation. Well, you had mentioned in passing on the Journey Home program Monday night, uh, Flannery O'Connor. I mean, there's <laughs> a. A great writer, though it took me three reads before I, I got <laughs> we're, we're a little bit of the direction she was going in her redemptive theology, which is great. But uh, uh, yet, yet again, does God speak through Flannery O'Connor? Well, to us, he's speaking to a unique group of people to try and awaken them to their need for salvation through her literature. Absolutely, and, and, and in her case in particular, um, often the, the radical. Uh, things that need to take place in our lives to open us up. Um, those moments of conversion are often um, not very subtle. <laughs> those calls to conversion, they, break, they have a way of breaking through uh, un- unexpectedly. Um, so, yes, I think that those, these, these, these texts not only contain truth themselves, but they, um, but they also open us up to, to the truths uh, more, more um, explicitly articulated in Scripture. Yeah, I hear one bizarre story, which I can't remember. Of course, a lot of them are bizarre, but the one where... You know, the man wants a church without Christ right. uh, who ends up blinding himself. But to me, that story always just talked about the danger of of seeking to define your faith apart from a guide that's trustworthy. If it's based on your own experience or what you happen to glean might be true in the moment, uh, you can set vows for yourself that are bizarre. Right. And, of course, that that, that takes in the bizarre direction. Yeah, a church without Christ. I mean, that's kind of what somebody wanted. That's right. And they still felt they didn't want anything to do with Christ, or they were running from Christ, but they, they, they needed a church, yeah. <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, yeah, it's uh, this uh, 
the Christ haunted South, um, from which she was writing. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very starkly drawn these, these distinctions and contrasts. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, a uh, it's interesting to see Flannery O'Connor being held up, um, so highly in academe by people who really have no clue <laughs> um, what it's about. Right, right, right. Well, uh, I've got to be careful. We could, we could go on with this. It's great <laughs> stuff, you know. Uh, uh, but we, we on this program want to focus a little bit on some of the scriptures that had a big part to play in your own journey. And you've chosen some that are, are familiar to those on the journey, which are, are just key passages, uh, all of which myself, I didn't. I didn't appreciate when I was a, a Protestant. Before I, I tell the audience the the verses, maybe in general, uh, what would you say is the significant difference in these scriptures now versus before you were a Catholic? Well, I, I think it, it's so easy to read scripture through um, the lenses that we've inherited. Um, I, I think as a, as a Protestant, I like to believe that I, w- I was reading um, reading the Bible. Uh, without any sort of presupposition, and at, um, just as if it had just fallen from the sky, um, but it, I wasn't. I was reading it from a tradition, from a, um, a vantage point that I inherited from all the great preachers and homilists that I had heard um, growing up, including and, your grandfather. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I had a tradition from which I was reading, um, and yet, if you had asked me um, about tradition. Um, I would have said, well, of course, we must avoid the traditions of men, and um, and we should hold the scripture only. Um, so I think how how I read um, scripture was 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 a good deal different. Um, there was a love for scripture all along, um, and a belief that um, you know, that the words of life could be found here. Um, and um, but it, it there was a naivete about the way I was reading scripture as well. In a positive sense, if you look back. You would say, I, I think, that indeed these scriptures and others the Lord did use as channels for you to encounter his son, Jesus Christ, to encounter an authentic faith in Christ. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, um, I is, before I became Catholic, not only did, um, did I read the scriptures and not only— um, we used to, at the church I grew up in. We'd you know, we were challenged to read, try to read the Bible annually, um, and uh, you know I remember being you know thirteen years old and 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 trying to go in and read every day to to get through in a year and encountering some um, things that I had never heard of, you know, particularly <laughs> in the Old Testament. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, but really, really getting a view of the whole in a way that um, of Scripture that I think a lot of people aren't able to achieve, and then later. Um, through the influence of some friends, memorizing scripture and meditating on it, and uh, ex- having the experience of, of really allowing scripture to seep into one's mind and transform the way you see the world, um, you know, those things are so formative, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for them. Um, and uh, but even you know, e- even with all of that, there's there's um, there are you know there you, you do it at some point encounter differences in interpretation. You do encounter different ways of reading um, the more difficult passages, and it's difficult to know as a Protestant, how to, how to go forward. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, some of the scriptures that you've, you've chosen for us today are all, you know, I think, very, they're familiar, uh, especially if, if you've heard this program. We've talked about these, but they're, I think, very significant. They're good to reexamine again, especially as each person talks about how they affected them in their life. The first one you've chosen is Second Thessalonians 2.15. Uh, 
Paul writing to the Christians at Thessalonica says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Uh, Dr. Harn, do you remember looking at this back when you were Pentecostal, Episcopalian? Sure. Well, I'm, I, I, I am absolutely certain that I read it many times. Um, and uh, it, I, I'm sorry to say, it never really registered. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I had a, a position from which I was reading, and it did not allow me to ever consider that there might be traditions that would have been passed on by the apostles. Um, and so it, was, it, was, it wasn't until um, I was challenged um, with the notion that such a thing might have taken place, and uh, even more radically, that such a thing might have a record in Scripture, um, that uh, that this this jumped off the page um, to me, and uh, so yes, this was this was something that uh, um, obviously the, the idea of, of standing firm and, and holding on um, to the things that would have been passed on by letter were certainly uh, um, there. I think I had this idea that that somehow uh, you know, Scripture had the New Testament in particular had emerged very very much earlier than it, it, you know um, in some sense, and, and I had never really thought through the historical. Probably um, never. Steps. You really have thought about it. You, no. this, this is the Bible that your grandfather handed you, your parents handed you, and this is the one you studied. It the, was the Word of God. And, and the King's English. And the, and the King's <laughs> English, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had never really thought through it. Again, there's this, this historical, a historical uh, perspective you can read from, and you never think about where, where does Scripture come from. Um, it was a Presbyterian minister. I was at a summer um, program for college students. Um, who first raised the question of, you know, uh, not the, so much the reliability of, of Scripture, but the idea that somehow um, God had given us everything we need in Scripture and that he had, he had um, and that there was nothing beyond that that, that we would need. But just opening, he, he didn't intend it this way, but, but just by opening it up um, a little bit to the idea that God would be working um, um, in the formation of the canon of Scripture, um, he didn't raise any questions about how that might have worked, yep. you know, who might have been involved. Um, but that raised questions about exactly where scriptures came from. Um, and the idea that, that somehow tradition in some sense could have, could have even existed before um, uh, was something I hadn't considered. And especially that little phrase, not just by letter, but by word of mouth. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's something I certainly never, never saw. Um, and I think if if you don't have a, your um, great confidence in the Holy Spirit's ability to um, guard and to guide the church, um, then you can it, it can becomes like a game of telephone, right? Right. If it's just up to the human human person um, and human beings to pass on the tradition, then it's going to get lost. Um, but thanks to that Presbyterian minister, I had, I had grown to to accept the fact that the Holy Spirit had guided the development of the canon of Scripture, um, and if I was willing to accept that, then why not? These, these these traditions by word of mouth. Why could those yeah. things not also be passed along at the same time? Yeah, this verse, let me read it again, because audience, Paul wrote this verse, oh, some think the the letters of to, his, to Thessalonica were some of the earliest of his letters, and, you know, maybe in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s of the first century. But this verse needs to be heeded every generation because when we look throughout the generations, the history of the church, there are constantly challenges 
there's always been challenges to pull people away from that which they had received. And they would be surrounded by voices. Paul even warned in one of the letters to Timothy that there'll come a time when people are going to listen with itchy ears to whatever teacher has a new and uh, intriguing, enticing message. And it's been that way all along. And it is today. It was in the 16th century when the Reformers decided to to establish new traditions, not hold to the old, but to establish new. And there is today. Well, and I think that's um, that's certainly true. And um, I think it's 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 challenging often when we don't understand the historical basis of the tradition. We don't understand how the tradition lines up with Scripture. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know, the reformers were no doubt um, they were they were familiar with the church fathers in many ways. Um, they they had a, a way of reading the fathers. But we now know, um, uh, thanks to scholarship on the fathers and in church history, that a lot of the doctrines, um, a lot of tra- the traditions um, that the performers attacked, in fact, had much more ancient grounding um, and did, in fact, harmonize the scriptures in ways that they didn't anticipate. Um, so it, it's, it's uh, you know, the admonition here is, is, is strong, and I think, uh, I think history has borne out its importance. You, as the president of a college... How important is a verse like this to guide what you do as the president of a Catholic college? Absolutely. I, uh, I think, you know, um, our college, the College of St. Mary Magdalene, was founded with the charism of um, training young people to, to go out and transform the world, um, having been formed in the faith um, and, uh, and in the truth of, of nature and of, of humanity and of God. Um, and we have to reformulate and redevelop how that looks and how that works each generation. But I can't ever let go of that original charism, that original gift. Um, and, um, yeah, I have to hold on firmly. Yeah. The stand firm and hold implies that it isn't automatic. That's right. And there are a, a lot of Christian traditions that believe it's automatic. Once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've arrived you are automatically going to stand firm because it's not your not your um, righteousness, but the righteousness of God. Right. But yet Paul is commanding, exhorting that they need to do this because there will always be these temptations to pull away. Absolutely. It's a volitional matter. It's not automatic. That really is key. I mean, let me ask you that. Did you always recognize the volitional aspect behind a lot of what was in Scripture? Of course, it brought up Pentecostal. You may have. That's right. Um, the, the, um, as a Pentecostal, it was uh, we didn't grow up with, with what is more common among evangelicals, the once saved, always saved approach. Um, in fact, um, later in life I was told that I had grown up with eternal insecurity. <laughs> um, so... Um, the uh, I mean we had we didn't have distinctions between things like mortal sin and venial sin, so you know any failing whatsoever, however slight, um, um, could be judged to have uh, you know basically separated you from God. So if anything, there was a uh, there was an enormous emphasis on the volitional, um, but as has often happened throughout church history, pretty early on you come to the recognition that uh, it's really you, you need grace that it's, yeah. it's really impossible. Um, but to uh, to carry it out um, 
you know, without, without this. I mean, and, there, and uh, so then you end up, you can go too far the other way and you uh, adopt a more evangelical perspective. Um, and then as a Catholic, I think that the understanding of, of different kinds of sin, the, um, the different means of grace, um, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's true. And it's, it's a, it's a, the errors of, that I grew up with and through, um, I think are resolved in the way the church presents, presents this. So there's a, a place for the volitional, a place for a person's commitment and living that out, um, and cooperating with grace. Um, but it, it is, it is, it is grace. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant to use this analogy cause I've not seen the movie, but I think there's a movie called Iron Man. I've not seen the I've movie. I've heard there yet. was. Yeah. yeah. I know there is. I just haven't seen it. So I don't, I certainly can't recommend it, but it, but it does show this human being inside of a of a, an enhancing uh, robotic uh, uh, armor that he's wearing that enables him to do beyond human things, and alone he couldn't do those things. But when he's in this armor. He's not merely just sitting back unvolitionally letting the armor do everything. It's still his volition, but the armor enables him to do far more than he could do on his own. It's a weak, but it's kind of an analogy of grace. Sure. Sure. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it, it, one of the most interesting discussions um, while we were that I had while we were moving toward the church, my wife and I, um, had to do with you know, the, the intervention of grace at different points in a, in a person's life, the, the idea of prevenient grace, um, which in, in some ways reconciled the, the concerns I had had as a former Presbyterian, you know, um, that um, even those, those initial stirrings toward God, you know, they come from God. Um, and, uh, and yet there is a place for, for uh, cooperation and, and working. Um, I use the analogy, and again, with all analogies, there are flaws here, but uh, um, of my, my children, so if my daughter, um, you know, at Christmas time, she wants to earn some money to buy presents, you know, um, she's, I'm, she's going, I'm going to give her chores to do. <laughs> um, then she's going to take the money that I've, um, I give her for the chores to buy me a present. So where did that gift come from? Um, in, in one sense, it came from my daughter. Um, but in another sense, it would have been impossible um, if, I, if I had not been providing those opportunities. Um, so I think at the end of the day, of, of course, we, um, we're, we're just, we're in awe and we're full of gratitude because, um, because of God's grace, and then the fact that He has given us um, the opportunity to, to to be a part of the process. Yeah, another scripture you chose, which is similar to the Second Thessalonian passage, but this is to the Christians at Corinth, First Corinthians eleven two, which Paul writes, "I commend you because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you." Now, why this particular one, George? Did you uh, uh, does this one come to mind that you wanted us to discuss? Right, I, I think. Um, the, well, we, we talked about the volitional piece of this um, right. and standing firm and holding in the previous verse, um, and I think again here it's it's uh, maintaining uh, maintaining the traditions, um, and uh, it's something that um, there's an implication here that that those traditions will then be handed on, you know, in each generation. Um, so we receive them, we maintain them. And then, uh, and that's of course the origin of the word tradition, anyway, um, to hand over. Um, but I think here, um, as in the previous verse that we didn't really talk about too much, but um, it's, it's the the personal level, the personal dimension that they're receiving these traditions from Paul, 
um, and from his his co-laborers um, that this is in the context of um, of a community. Um, traditions aren't passed on from individual, you know, sort of single people from from uh, from one to the other, but they take place and they're unfolded and they're maintained um, within the within the church. Yeah, maybe another verse from that same book to add to this: First Corinthians. Uh, Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel which you received in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I delivered to you what I also received. There's that passing mm-hmm. on. Let's pause there and we'll come back okay. after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. George Harn, the president of the College of St. Mary Magdalene. Uh, Dr. Harn, before we took a break, I just finished reading uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, just as an expansion of what you had also chosen, because you'd mentioned on Monday night the importance of understanding the apostolic succession the authority that comes with that because you had one of the key things that had awakened you towards the church was I don't know if I want to call it infused knowledge but you had experienced a a recognition and belief in the true presence of Christ the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and because of that you realized the necessity of the apostolic succession and Paul in the beginning of the whole thing is 
kind of referring to it here when he says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's right. The um, this this idea of, of being part of a larger cha- <coughs> excuse me larger chain um, in which the tradition and the um, the teaching is passed on, I think, is essential. And you referred to this this moment where um, I came to recognize and believe yeah. in, in the true presence, and how the, the next step from that is um, if uh, if you're going to have uh, the Eucharist, you're going to need priests, and then you're going to need bishops, and um, and uh, I think w- once you start looking into that very closely, and you start reading um, the early early church fathers, um, you discover that this was assumed uh, that this was um, there, there was the uh, the belief that this this tradition existed, and it, it provided a key um, not only for the formation of the canon, but for how you understand scripture. Um, so the verses we talk about today, uh, many many other verses um, in the in the scripture. Um, the church not only gives us the scripture um, through the Bible, but also um, gives us the keys to how to understand it and how to interpret it. And that um, is critical. And I think, I think without that, we see you know, the multiplication of, of a variety of, of approaches that lead to denominations and further breaking you know, in the church. Yeah. The, I've been doing the Journey Home program for over 15 years. This is our 15th season. So if you multiply that times f- at least 40 interviews a year. That's a mess of interviews. A mess of converts and reverts to the church. But the majority of those men and women found our Lord Jesus before they ever thought about coming home to the Catholic Church, as you did and as I did. So we're very grateful to our brothers and sisters who, through their love for the Lord, shared it to us. He was your grandfather. That's right. Your family. For me, it was my Lutheran pastor when I was a young man. And we recognize that reading Scripture is the it is the inspired Word of God. It is indeed what we Protestants believed it to be. That's right. And it can change our lives. We know that to be true. And it can bring people to our Lord Jesus Christ. God can do that. But the question is the understanding, the application, the the interpretation, uh, the formulation, the synthetic organization of what we think it means has led to thousands of conflicting conclusions. And we either have to say that all those conclusions are irrelevant as long as you got Jesus. But then I know you as a professor as a president of a university know there are a lot of opinions of Jesus out there. That's right. Many of which based on the Bible. That's right. That's right. And it's um what what I as a, as an academic um, what I found was that uh um, how you interpret scripture, um, how you interpret any aspect of culture, um, has a lot to do with whatever the current uh, uh, <laughs> fad is, if you will. Um, yep. That these things come and go. New, new, a new generation of scholars comes along, and they have to uh, they have to come up with something to say. Right. So um, uh, and so they do, and um, it's uh, it's it's I think looking over the long historical. You know the history of, of Christianity, looking over the, the historical length of, of things, and finding out, um, you know, how is how has this particular passage been read, you know, over the course um, of history. So even even prior to the Reformation, you know, if you just look at how how a passage um, about tradition or some um, you know the Eucharist or some other other matter has been read, um, you know, how was it understood for the first thousand years of Christianity? That's a very important question, um, and um, 
so I think I think that kind of that kind of historical reading, um, and it, then if, if you know when you believe that the Holy Spirit has guided this process, um, He's not only given us Scripture, but He's also given us the keys to understand it and interpret it. The uh, you mentioned the Catechism. Before we go to the next verse, I do want to just point out uh, the whole Catechism. I strongly recommend, and if those of you who are out there who uh, have not taken the time to understand what the Catholic Church really teaches, you think you know, but maybe. You, you may not be sure. I always recommend the Catechism, which is available online. I mean, it, it's made available. But the first statement by Pope John Paul in the Catechism is is the, the best starting point because he says that guarding the deposit of faith is the mission which the Lord entrusted to his church in which she fulfills in every age. Not coming up with new ideas. It's to, it's guarding. That's the purpose That's right. of the church is guarding. That's right. And um and I think I think I think when you when you start thinking about um sacred scripture in relation to tradition that is um inspired by um the Holy Spirit, um then you have to eventually ask the question, well, you know, what's how does this happen? And what's the process? Um, and who are the agents involved? And that, of course, leads you to the church. Another Talk about the church. Another scripture which uh, you point out you'd like us to direct our attention to is, is one that it was the verse that awakened me to the start mm-hmm. my journey to the a Catholic church because uh, it was a verse that wasn't in my Bible before. I have no idea how someone snuck it in <laughs> and put it in there because it wasn't there before. And I wonder if you had a similar experience and this is First Timothy 3.15, when Paul writes, If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. That's right. Um, I, I think I think you and I had the same version of the scriptures, the one without this verse. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I, I had grown up believing the church was this kind of, it was, it was like a sacred trade union. It was a free association. Um and it, it, it um, you know, it, it really just, you know, what kind of association you needed depended on the, you know, whatever the circumstances were. The idea that somehow the church um, would be um, divinely instituted and, and, and guarded and protected um, throughout history um, um, was something that was foreign to my thinking. Um, and um, the idea that it somehow would be the pillar and bulwark of the faith, that was something that I had reserved to scripture. Um, right. But the, um, I think the way that things uh, unfolded is it, you, you come to see that Scripture is something um, that is given to us by the church, that is um, uh, protected by the church, and that the church helps us interpret Scripture. But behind Scripture at every level um, is the church. And um, I think working through the idea of, of you know, obviously we are fallen human beings, um, and, you know, the, you know, that there's the human dimension uh, but then there's also the supernatural dimension. Um, this is uh, this is an, it was an important question, and it was something that um, is uh, I think is essential um, to to someone who's coming into the church. And so, yeah, this verse wasn't wasn't even on my radar, um, and uh, it was very shocking when I <laughs> when someone pointed it out to me. Same same to me because uh, just like you said, to me the pillar and bulwark of truth was the Bible, and I wouldn't have thought of anything else. I would never have thought that my Presbyterian church was the pillar and bulwark of truth. I may have thought that uh, 
of Christianity as the clearest expression of it, but I would not have felt that it, that organization with its executive presbyter and the presbytery, because generally as a Presbyterian, everything that came from the head office that I was to give to my congregation, I threw out because it was usually pro-choice, liberal, left-leaning, and I was a conservative, pro-life Presbyterian. So I was the pillar and bulwark of my church as I interpreted Scripture. And I'm wondering, so what you say is you believed like I did in kind of an invisible, universal, quasi-unanimous gathering of believers in Jesus Christ throughout all ages. That was the church. And who was a member of that? Yeah. Well, even that was tricky. I think think it's easier if you you stay isolated and you don't interact with too many different kinds of Christians because— um, but the more, the more Christians you meet, um, who have a variety of viewpoints and they're very fervent in their faith. Um, no one would deny, um, their deep love of God and their strong desire to serve him, you know, even to the point of death. Uh, and you can't call those things into question. And yet, um, there are so many, so many, uh, varieties of, of belief. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot as an American, I think, um, I think I lived in a kind of ahistorical Christianity. Um, and so it, it really was just about my understanding of Scripture and my understanding of the church came back to my local congregation and like-minded people. Um, the first interaction that I had with any sort of historical view of Christianity came with the Reformation and with the Reformed yeah. tradition um, and an attempt to ground um, the understanding of grace um, and uh, election and things like that um, in some sort of historical interpretation of Scripture. Um, but once you start doing that, then you have to ask yourself, why am I waiting to do this with the 16th century? You know, and then, yeah. you, and then you discover those that volume of the church fathers that's hiding in the library. <laughs> um, and you start reading the fathers. And uh, we talked about this earlier. The, um, when you start reading Ignatius of Antioch and uh, Polycarp, you discover that their, um, their views on grace and on the sacraments uh, are, unfortunately, from a Protestant perspective, uh, very Catholic-sounding. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so... Um, it really forces you to rethink um, what what the church is, and um, and again, as you said, if if you're in a small, tight little group of Christians where you don't have contact with very many others, you can get assume that well, this great invisible church is kind of equivalent to what we have here in this little gathering. Because I have met Pentecostals who looked on Azusa Street as the reform of the reform. Mm-hmm almost the way Protestants look at the Reformation as the reform of the Catholic Church. And really that's, uh, again, so that you have this true reform coming out of Azusa Street and the Pentecostals have recaptured the first century Christianity versus how many had lost it for the last 2,000 years. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's, um, we do we do create a narrative. Um, I, think in which, I think there's a natural desire to have a narrative in which we place our own experience. Um, and uh, I think... Once you've widened the frame far enough, um, it's uh, it's a very rich narrative um, that stretches from the, from from Christ to the present day, and it does, you know, it's it it prov- to have the opportunity um, to really read Scripture through the lens of of two thousand years of Christianity, um, and Catholic exegetes haven't always agreed, but the but the, the the teaching authority of the Church has has over time brought clarification um, and. Uh, yeah. You know, again, the trust ultimately 
um, it's it's through Scripture to the church, and that is a church that's founded and guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit. So it's not in a human institution. It's in a, an institution that, that um, God established. Okay. We'll take a break there, Dr. Haynes, and come back. You had one other text. I think our audience may have heard of this one, but this is a key one. This deals with the Eucharist in John chapter 6. We'll look at this when we get back from our break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. George Harn, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. George Harn. Uh, Dr. Harn, we're looking at um, uh, John 6, 51 through 55. And uh, for me, again, this was one of those sections of Scripture that I avoided. I don't remember avoiding it on purpose, but just never preached on it. And, uh, and I'm wondering, how did you as a Pentecostal and then maybe later as Episcopalian dealt with this passage you've chosen. Let me read this. I, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Well, I, yeah, this this passage wasn't in, in my Bible, um, and um, <laughs> but it was it wasn't one that I had underlined or highlighted um, as an evangelical. And um, you know, I think this is a case where my tradition, the tradition that I didn't realize I had. Um, affected how I read it, so my tradition was this is symbolic. I mean, this is this is uh, this is just the way it is. Um, and I, I applied the same thing to uh, passages about baptism. Um, and so I didn't realize, again, coming from a, a more ahistorical perspective, I didn't realize that I was I was reading it from Enlightenment lenses. Right. Um, through uh, and um, and then. As I began to r- read and learn more about church history, again, going back to the Reformation, knowing that when I learned that uh, Calvin and Luther both had um, not adopted a purely symbolic perspective, they had tried to come up with other ways to think about this, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately it was Zwingli, I guess, who uh, adopted more of a, a purely symbolic perspective. The idea that, the, that, that um, even someone like Luther would have felt the need to preserve some, some sense of... of, of of a literal reading of this of this passage, I think was was uh, very important, um, and of course you know that's true for a number of doctrines that we think of as being purely Catholic. Um, but 
it's interesting that um, when you read the scripture again, um, you know, after the Jews jump in and say, um, uh, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus doesn't say, oh, I, I was just being metaphorical. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it's a figure of speech. Don't you guys know anything about poetics? <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> that's not his response. It's, um, it's simply a matter of um, he just he drives it home even, even harder. Um, and, you know, and then I, I think, you know, you'd asked about, you know, how one might read this as an Episcopalian. I think that, that depends on what kind of Episcopalian one is. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, there are at least three different varieties and some of them are more Catholic, um, and some much more Protestant. Um, I think as you, as you begin, um, moving toward the, the, the high Anglo-Catholic end of Anglicanism, um, you begin to read this much more literally. Um, but then what, what you find, and this is very disconcerting, is you find that that was, that was how um, it was understood in the early church and in the fathers and throughout the whole tradition. Um, so it's, um, you know, that, that, that tradition is, has, has a great deal of force, a great deal of attractive force. And uh, so I think that's, that, was, that was key. 53 through 55 together, as you said, verse 52, when the Jews asked that question, which seems like, the obvious question, and then your tradition and mine both were, without even listening to Jesus, we'd assume, well, he's symbolic. That was the answer, without even listening to what he said. But what's significant about those verses together, uh, Dr. Harn, is that people that, whether you're Pentecostal or Episcopalian, I suppose a key question that your average layperson wants to have answered is, what must I do to be saved? What must I, how must I be living to be living right in the eyes of God? Right. And he's very strong in 53 through 54 through 55 in speaking very seriously. But we just so quickly blew it away as a symbolic and then we never, we never looked at it again. But he's talking seriously in there. That's right. Um, it pivots all on eternal life here. Um, I mean, that's, that's what it turns on. Um, it's not, um, it's not, not only is it not a symbol, um, it's, it's, it's reality, but it's also reality that's tied into our deepest, our deepest desire, our deepest longing. Um, and, um, and you know, the repetition and the layered repetition here of, of, yeah. of, you know, it doesn't just say it once, but again and again, um, it's, 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 yeah, it's interesting how, you know, these things are here, but we don't see them. <laughs> well, it's partially on these verses that the church teaches that we enter into the body through baptism. We become new creatures. The old is gone, the new has come through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the washing away of original sin. We become members of the body, brothers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We, the church teaches that. So in that sense, anyone around the world that's baptized in an authentic manner in the Trinitarian formula is a member of the body. Imperfectly, though. That's right. Because they're outside the church or they've rejected the hierarchy, they've rejected their teaching. But, but by baptism, they're a member of it. But the church also teaches, which is the reason we evangelize, even those who are baptized, is we want them to have the fullness and that initiation of baptism is completed in the Eucharist. They're both essential based on what's taught here. It's not enough to be baptized. 
you need the fullness of the of the church, particularly the Eucharistic encounter with our Lord Jesus. That's right. Um, it is the source and summit of our faith, and uh, it's um, and it it's this this incarnational um, sacramental view um, of the world that is distinctively Catholic, um, in which in which the spiritual, uh, the metaphysical meets the physical. Um, it the logic runs through um, all the sacraments, you know, water you know, for baptism, um, oil for confirmation, and so on. Um, it, it helps us. Uh, not only does it does it give us the food and drink of eternal life, it guards against a host of of other errors, um, the tendency to separate you know the physical from the spiritual too far. Yeah. Um, so many so many levels. Um, it, it brings healing and correction, um, and uh, and ultimately communion, uh, which is what we all desire. I'm wondering, from your study of the great books, um, you mentioned a little bit ago that often the the soup from which we're interpreting Scripture is an enlightenment view to which we may be blind. And I've heard many converts who've spent most of their life in Protestant circles that have all their life seen the Eucharist as merely symbolic that even after they become Catholic, they may say, oh, I accept what the church teaches, but it's tough. And I'm wondering if it's because that the soup of enlightenment that we're so much a part of is hard to break free from when that's all we've ever known. And I wonder if your experience at college teaching students that that's what they are brought up in, is it tough for them to break through? Or does it take like a gift of grace like you experienced that like an infused uh, reality of the of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Well, you mentioned the um, the great books, um, uh, you know, the assistance that can come from reading these these texts that aren't, uh, you know, obviously religious or even intended as such. Yeah. Um, one of the first steps, one of the initial steps in um, the education we offer is uh, bringing students to a place where they recognize. Um, that they have lenses through which they see the world. They have opinions um, that in some sense uh, that they're, they're carrying um, a worldview that they're unaware of. Um, and uh, bef- and the, this view often will blind them to not only themselves, um, but also the larger truths that they need to encounter to live you know, full, fully human lives. So I think um, you know, whether that be a primarily enlightenment view um, that affects the way that they see the sacraments, um, whether it be a view that emphasizes individualism um, and uh, and downplays uh, things like community. Um, and uh, that's another issue related to our view of the church. I yeah. think a lot of it comes from our cultural of individualism. Um, it's just it's anathema uh, to us as American individuals to, to be told we have to be part of a larger group. Um, and um, <laughs> so it's uh, – I, I, think, I think in many cases we see students um, – uh, becoming aware of their worldviews and then, and then examining it. I mean, once, once you realize you have it, then you can step back and examine it. Um, and, uh, and then ask yourself, is this the right way to see the world? Um, is this the right way to see scripture? Um, and, uh, and then, and then the process of change in, in real intellectual and spiritual growth can happen. When you accept the fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God and the Holy spirit does guide us in our interpretation, but yet we come up with a thousand different interpretations. I mean, to a certain extent, it is those cultural presuppositions that we're blind to that makes the difference between the inspired word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's not the problem of the spirit of the word, it's us. That's right. And what we bring to the study. 
that we don't often see. That's right. Well, once again, Dr. Harn, thanks for joining us. If the audience is interested in contacting you or knowing more about the school, where should they go? They can go to magdalene.edu, or they can call 603-456-2656. Okay, thanks again. Again, that's the College of St. Mary Magdalene, www.magdalene.edu. Dr. Harn, thanks for joining us today. It's a great thank pleasure. You. It's my pleasure. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. I Again, our goal in this program is to encourage you to to read the Word of God, but to read it through the lenses of the teacher through which we received the Word of God, and that is the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, as I said from the catechism, read from the catechism, the church's job is to guard that deposit and pass it on. So thanks for joining us. God bless. See you again next week.